Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Wednesday, June 30th. I'm Lorraine Cáceres. These are today's headlines. Day seven of an unfolding tragedy near Miami. The death toll from the condo building collapse in Surfside, Florida, now growing to 16. Hundreds of highly trained rescue personnel toiling 24 hours a day, scouring the rubble, searching for survivors. The number of missing still more than 140. State prosecutors, meanwhile, announcing that a grand jury will be convened to investigate the deadly collapse as several lawsuits from residents who survived the disaster are filed in local courts. And the Delta variants being blamed for a sharp rise in the number of coronavirus hospitalizations in Mississippi, as experts warn the dangerous strain is spreading rapidly among the unvaccinated here in the U.S. This and much more today on U News, recorded live in our newsroom in Miami. We begin with the latest on the tragic condo collapse in Surfside, Florida. More than 200 rescue workers still on site, recovering human remains overnight. The official death toll rising to 16, while more than 140 are still not accounted for. This as a grand jury is now set to begin an investigation into what went wrong with the partial collapse of the 12-story residential building. New audio revealing the shock after fire crews arrived at the scene of the Champlain South Tower collapse, comparing it to 9-11. building does not look stable. A quarter of the building that's left, we still have people standing upstairs that don't need to be evacuated. I see many people on the balconies. There's, the building is gone. There's no elevators. This, this is nothing. I mean, it's, it almost resembles the trade center. It's been a week since the horrific scene unfolded, and search and rescue is still a 24-hour operation. Rescue teams slowly making progress, removing debris. It's just so hard to, I mean, unless you're there, you, you don't understand um, how difficult it is to work. All I can say is that I thank God for the support of uh, my teammates. All of the rescue specialists that are doing an amazing job. I've never seen so many people come together. Uh, I'm sorry. Despite the efforts, the news emerging overnight, not what many are hoping for. At the last 12 hours, we found some more people. Unfortunately, they are not alive. Uh, we found some more tunnels and we scrolled at night in, in, in those tunnels. And uh, there are from one hand new spaces that we find and from the other we find more people but unfortunately not alive. Crews have already removed three million pounds of debris from the collapse but the weather has been relentless. Mother Nature now threatening to make the process even slower. Authorities having to pull some rescue workers from the site to prepare for possible severe weather. Uh, we do have two potential areas of development. Um, that are out in the Atlantic right now heading into the Caribbean. So we talked about doing a relief. So we have all the resources we need, but we're going to bring in another team to, if you will, backfill those resources. Meanwhile, officials calling for a grand jury investigation into the collapse. The grand jury itself chooses topics to investigate and the state attorney has said she will be reaching out to the grand jury on this issue. And of course, we support that fully and we'll cooperate. 
Across Miami-Dade County, high-rises 40 years and older and above four stories are undergoing an audit. More than 500 buildings being inspected on Miami Beach alone. One building already notified to close off access to four balconies. And meanwhile, rescue specialists from Mexico are joining the massive search for survivors in the wreckage in Surfside. The Mexico-based GO team of Cadena International, a Jewish nonprofit now in the disaster zone, assisting local, state, and federal rescue teams. Cadena has responded to more than 1,000 natural disasters and humanitarian crises in 26 countries since 2005. Moises Safer, one of Cadena's seven volunteers currently in Surfside, says he's hopeful that he can still find survivors with the help of his partner, Oreo, a rescue dog trained to find living victims in disasters. There's also a second rescue team from Mexico on the scene called Topos Azteca. That's a nonprofit group founded after the deadly 1985 Mexico City earthquake. And joining me now is Robert A. Jensen. He's a disaster management expert whose company, Canyon International, has helped with mass casualty incidents from 9-11 to Hurricane Katrina to the 2004 tsunami in Thailand. Thanks for being here, Robert. You're welcome. It's been, a nearly, it's been nearly a week since the collapse. What hopes remain for finding someone alive? Well, I, I think it's important to help people start to transition. I, I would have moved from a search and rescue to search and recovery because the likelihood of finding survivors at this point, based on the information I've seen, is I think very slim. And it's hard to tell people that we're transitioning. It's hard to tell people that we don't think we're gonna recover anyone else alive, but it's very important for the families the community and the responders to start to adjust expectations because of the long-term consequences. We're now past the crisis response and we're into the management of the consequences. And part of that is acknowledging and accepting the loss, something we can't change. And Robert, a trench has been dug in the pile to look for survivors. Can you talk to us about how they are performing the search through that trench? Yes, well, I and I, and I'm, I'm not, I'm a field guy. I'm not, not a desk CEO. And I was at Oklahoma city, um, the Haitian earthquake, 9-11, um, all those locations and spent many days and, and weeks going through those areas. So what happens is when you're looking for survivors, you typically come in from underneath the, the tunneling and, and the Mexican teams you mentioned, for example, worked with in Haiti or, or are outstanding as is the Miami Dade task force. So you've got to have listening devices, dogs, equipment nearby can throw off those listening devices, can trigger more damage. So you have to be very careful what's working around you. So it's slow. That's why rescue is a little bit slower than recovery. You're going to be looking for empty spaces, voids, pockets that could be protecting people. But when you look at the pictures of the debris, you understand the building structure, the collapse, you know that those pockets are going to be small and, and at this point probably not survivable. Such a tricky situation. First responders have been working nonstop through the heat, the storms and the smoke, but there's also an emotional toll. Is there a system to specifically address mental health for those on the front lines of this disaster? Yes, and it's one that I hope was in place before the disaster occurred. 
because it's not our disaster. We're not responding for us. We're responding for the survivors and for the families. And part of the recovery and part of the transition for the responders, because, because look, anyone who goes to a scene like this doesn't come home the same. And you can look in the past and see where there's been post-incident suicides. And for first responders, it's been a really hard year. It's been a hard couple of years. And so I would expect that Miami-Dade will have a critical incident stress program, a peer program, employee assistance program to help people process what they've been through. But this is again why it's so important to set expectations because the reality that we have I don't think is a reality we're setting expectations for. Robert, the insurance company retained by the condo association said they will make an upfront payment for damages. How will settlements with the families proceed? What can they expect? Well, this is going to be a mess, frankly, because a condominium association in Florida has many of them. In fact, I've sat on boards because I live in Florida for a condo and homeowners associations. It, you're in effect going to be suing yourself or family members are going to be suing the estates of their loved ones because they were the owners of the majority of the units and i think the majority were owner occupied and what i've recommended or would suggest is that a mediation and a fund be set up and let the insurers argue amongst themselves between all the potential parties but make it easy for the families to cover those immediate expenses for the survivors and to help the families that are depending on income from people who were in the tower. And so a settlement process will likely be years. When you look at the building collapses and things like this, lawsuits will go on for a number of years. And that will be very difficult for families. So lessons learned are make it easy because we know that the money will go to the families let the bill payers argue amongst themselves behind the scenes while setting up something to make it easy for families because survivors are going to need housing. All those things of life have kind of come to a standstill, but are going to have to return. Such a complicated situation. Thank you so much for your insight and your time. Disaster management expert Robert A. Jensen of Kenyon International. You're welcome. And even as rescue efforts continue, state prosecutors are already set to launch a probe into what led to the building's collapse. Joining us now to talk about the timeline of that investigation and what to expect is John Pistorino. He's a structural engineering consultant and has now been retained to investigate this collapse. John, welcome to U News. What's the timeline for an investigation of this magnitude? Well, I think once the site has been turned over, once the uh, rescuers have uh, completed the site and turned it over basically back to the association, then uh, teams of engineers will go in and begin to uh, have a program as to how to actually come up with what really was the failure mechanism. Uh, in my experience, uh, basically I'm thinking that it will probably be maybe a period of three months or so it would be my first guess because what happens is you have to look at all the history of the building all the maintenance has taken place and everything and then uh, what we normally do is start taking the building apart piece by piece what pieces uh, identify where they were where they connected the building you put them in some kind of a yard or area where you can reassemble uh, the building and start to look at 
the failure mode of each of the pieces. And you do that systematically before you take the pieces out. The uh, various engineers, and I say there'll be a whole group of engineers who've been retained by different entities. But the idea of the engineers are you know, that they share their expertise, they share their information with each other so that we can all at the end come to uh, some sort of a conclusion about really what happened. So as you take the pieces out, uh, you identify them uh, uh, and, and place them in some kind of configuration uh, where they might have been a part of the building, especially in the areas of where there were a lot of uh, instances where the collapse may have begun is where you might focus. And then, and then um, you, when you get down to the, say, the, the, the bottom near the, the basement areas and all that, you might then have a geotech engineering firm come in and start to do some borings uh, or ground penetration tests, as we call them, and as well to see what the condition of the foundation is, the piles, the pile caps, and, and get all that information to, to uh, in effect, that would then um, uh, basically uh, have uh, as much information so that we can all come up with what actually might have uh, precipitated this collapse. And that's the usual form that you use. Definitely a multi-layer process. Let's talk about current regulations. You designed the Miami-Dade County 40-year recertification requirement for buildings. Should that recertification come sooner given everything we know now? Well, no, I mean, the 40-year, um, certainly we could make it sooner, but that came about because we did have a building collapse in 1974 that was a little less than 40 years old, and that was a building that had not been taken care of. There was abuse, and, and the structural defects were hidden, and, of course, it collapsed and, and killed a lot of people. So our thought was, you know, if buildings aren't going to be taken care of, then, you know, this is, a, this is about the time frame when they can lose their structural capacity. But the idea is for getting about 40-year recertification, that's only a line, so to speak, drawn in the sand. Buildings are supposed to be uh, maintained and looked after from the day they're built. The owners, the management companies are supposed to continually to maintain them. So when you get to a 40-year point, the building officials, yeah, they send out, okay, you haven't got your 40-year certification, but those certifications should only take a relatively short period of time and, and cost to do if the building has been maintained properly all this time. So you don't wait 40 years and then sort of look around and say, okay, well, now we'll start looking at our building to see if there's any issues. No, you look at it right away. And many of the buildings right now down the coast where concrete restoration is going on, they're not, uh, they're not issues dealing with the 40-year recertification. There's issues dealing with because they have, uh, they have uh, experienced damage in the building, corroding steel, cracked concrete, and they're addressing it as they should in order to maintain the integrity of the building. And so, John, uh, th that's the idea of the 40 years. And John, how can Miami condo dwellers, specifically those in older buildings in this area, be reassured that they are safe? Yes, that's one of the reasons I'm even doing these kind of interviews. As long as they have maintained their buildings, as I've said, these buildings are designed with large safety factors. We're in a hurricane zone. The foundations are deep. And uh, as long as they've been maintained, there should be no problem or no question with any of the uh, residents of these buildings. Well, that's reassuring to hear. Thank you so much, John Pistorino, structural engineer in Miami.
In the meantime, we're also hearing more from residents of the Champlain Towers. One of those residents, Eric Demora, expected to was expected to be in his condo the at the time of the collapse, but he says he's alive only because his girlfriend persuaded him not to go home that night. And as Andrea Linares tells us, that decision changed everything. I'm, I'm still in shock. Uh, I feel like I'm in a movie. Eric Demoda says you know, he's lucky to be alive. Passed. For the past two years, he lived on the 10th floor at the Champlain Tower South, but now what he called home is completely gone. Last Wednesday night, he went to his girlfriend's house. Hours later, he was ready to head back to his apartment. I was out of the door when she put me, she put me back inside. His girlfriend, Fernanda, insisted that, that he stay. I don't know, was stronger than me when I say, stay here. I didn't ask him, do you want to stay here? I say, we are not going. For some strange reason, I didn't react to what she said. She said, you, you, you're not going, you're not going. And I came back inside. That evening, he woke up at 5.30 a.m. to set up his alarm for an early morning appointment. And that's when he noticed a new text message. Eric says it was from one of the security workers from the building asking if he was okay. I called her back and I said, what's, what's going on? She said, oh my God, you alive. I said, what do you mean, Eric, the building collapsed? Looking back now, Eric believes this tragedy could have been avoided. Multiple reports have surfaced outlining major problems. The building had been suffering decay since 2018. The board president of Champlain Tower South addressed these issues in a letter on April 9th, seeking to explain a $15 million special assessment to condo owners. The concrete deterioration is accelerating. The roof situation got much worse, so extensive roof repairs had to be incorporated. Photos and eyewitness accounts describe cracks on balconies, concrete columns, and in the parking lot. I could see my neighbors uh, on the top floor, and there were cracks. And responding to your question, why didn't I do anything? You know, I could have asked. But again, uh, people knew about it. You know, there were meetings and there were documents. Other residents claim that concerns were raised well over a decade ago. Now, as engineers search for answers into the collapse, rescuers keep digging through the rubble trying to find victims. Meanwhile, Eric is just grateful to have been given another chance. I'm alive again. Definitely. Uh, looking at that building, mm -hmm. what's left, uh, it's being reborn. Eric and Fernanda say this whole experience has brought them closer together. His focus now will be processing his emotions, taking one day at a time as he tries to rebuild his life. In Miami, Florida, Andrea Linares, U News. More of U News after this short break.
Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. U News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your news, your world, U News on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. And now to the coronavirus crisis and the Delta variants becoming more prevalent. The CDC saying the strain accounts for more than a quarter of all new cases across the country, up from approximately 3% of new cases just over a month ago. Grecia Lastra has the latest. A new warning from the CDC this morning. The highly contagious Delta variant now accounts for more than 26% of new cases in the U.S. and in several areas of the country. Experts say it could be up to half of new cases. In Missouri, the epicenter for the Delta surge, where only 38% of eligible people have been fully vaccinated. New COVID-19 cases have risen by more than 76% in the last month. Health officials urging the public to seek vaccinations. All the more as Moderna says new preliminary data shows its vaccine appearing to work against all the concerning variants, including Delta. At the Texas Children's Hospital, they're tracking cases of the Delta variant in children under 12. Those ineligible to receive the shots, doctors are warning their protection is dependent on everyone else to get fully vaccinated. This Delta variant is especially adept at infecting partially vaccinated individuals. So those adults and adolescents who may think that one shot out of two is enough, think again. As the variants control over the country grows, in Los Angeles, health officials now recommending masks in public indoor spaces, regardless of the vaccination status. I did take off my mask a couple weeks ago, but now with the new variant coming out, I am I, I'm hearing of people getting COVID again and I'm getting a little bit nervous. This is Grecia Lastra reporting for you news. In other vaccine news, a new study suggests most adults in the U.S. who want to get vaccinated against COVID-19 have already done so. A poll of almost 1,900 people by Kaiser Family Foundation shows 65% of adults have received at least one dose. That's up just 3% points from May, and 14% of those surveyed said they won't get they won't get the vaccine at all. About one third of those not vaccinated say they'd be more likely to do so. So if a vaccine was fully approved by the Food and Drug Administration. And Dr. Anthony Fauci weighing in on the potential effectiveness of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine against the rapidly spreading Delta variant. J&J, we don't have formal data yet to say that they're in that high category, but there's circumstantial evidence that suggests it will be okay. So you can make a reasonable assumption that if the AZ is good against the Delta, that J&J, even though you haven't formally proved it, is highly likely going to be just as good against the Delta variant. More than 8 million doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine have been administered as of last month.
An unprecedented delay in processing DACA applications and renewals has thousands of dreamers concerned. Now, as Janet Rodriguez explains, the agency in charge of those requests is responding to criticism. Thousands of DACA recipients have been waiting up to a year for the approval or renewal of their deferred action. Those delays have left many without legal status or the ability to work key features of the DACA program. And in a lot of cases, DACA recipients can be subject to deportation, especially if they live in states like Alabama and Georgia, where immigration laws are very strict. The delays have gotten worse in the past few months. According to the new numbers from USCIS, the agency that handles DACA requests. That data showing that since March of this year, more than 55,000 new requests for DACA status are still active, with just over a thousand that have actually been processed. When it comes to DACA renewals, the situation is a little better. Out of 168,000 applications for renewal, about 44,000 remain active. Ninfa Amador Ortiz applied for DACA status for the first time in December of 2020. Up until that point, she had spent 16 years waiting for some sort of immigration protection. I've seen how I've had many doors closed because I don't have official status, but I'm still hopeful, though. I still don't have a decision yet. In the meantime, NIFA's fear, similar to thousands of others, is that a federal court in Texas may declare the program unconstitutional, which would leave so many with active applications in limbo. Senate Democrats have sent letters to USCIS, putting pressure on the agency to speed up the process of approvals and renewals, urging officials to resume the 120-day process that up until recently had been the norm. Agency officials say they recognize the delays, saying the pandemic and a corresponding rising request is to blame. They say they're working on processing existing delays as quickly as possible. Hopefully they can expedite my approval. I'm a college student and soon I'll be graduating. I can't pursue my career without official immigration status. In Washington, Janet Rodriguez, U News. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe, rate, and review. Join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.